0: I was thinking that last week's message would have been a fitting closing to the series in Revelation, especially what we talked about. Life in paradise. Life in the new heavens and the new earth and all that uh, is represented there. Being able to eat of the tree of life. We, We talked about all the beautiful things about the holy city and what they represented the river of living water that flows down the street of the holy city coming from the throne of God. And we, we drink of that and there's eternal life. All that we read about the Lamb being the, the Lamb of God being the temple of the Lord, that He's the light, that, so we don't need sun or moon. He illuminates the whole thing. His glory radiates throughout all of it. The presence of God is everywhere. And, and the last words there that we looked at about this vision John had uh, of the world to come, the glories of the world to come, in verse 5 of 22, he says, And they will reign forever and ever. Isn't that beautiful? That is the ultimate happy ending. That's the real, they lived happily ever after. There is nothing more fitting than that. But Revelation doesn't end there. There's still a little bit more that God wants to speak to us, to his church in and through this. These last words of Revelation are hope-filled. A beautiful promise is contained therein of Christ's coming... There's also strong words of exhortations for the church of Jesus Christ that we must heed and we must respond to. Uh, So we're going to take a look at these last words, They're the last words of your Bible, the last page of the written word of God. So we want to know what God says to his people in these very last things. Our main point here today is simply this, that Christ's return brings to completion God's redemptive plan. Everything God has designed from before eternity past, right? He is is brought to completion at the return of the Lord. And the hope of his second coming should motivate our obedience and our worship. Hear now the words of the living God, Revelation 22, verse 6 through the end. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. And He said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may, ent- that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen and amen. The way I've determined to walk through uh, this final passage in Revelation is to look at four sets of triplets that we can find here in this scripture that reinforces not only the message of Revelation, but I think puts a, a great Uh, exclamation point to the message contained therein about persevering to the end, being faithful to the end, and the worship of God. So the first triplet that we are going to look at is the triple testimony found in this final chapter. And the first is found there at the opening in verse 6. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The words contained in the book of Revelation are trustworthy and true. Now that phrase not only signals the end of this final series of revelations, it's the seventh of the series of parallel revelations that we have looked at throughout the entire book, but it also signals, signals the end of all of the visions. It's, it's the last one. It's the last one of the entire series. And it's it's emphasizing, once again, or alluding to this chain of revelation of how this message came to John and ultimately how it comes to us here today. 2,000 plus years later, here we are talking about a revelation that John, the apostle of the Lord, had in the first century. How God's word has been preserved. It's a testimony to its truthfulness, its veracity. Uh, You saw this in the opening of Revelation. The very first verse tells us, Whose revelation it is. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.1. Which God gave him. Look at the chain there of the testimony. To show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. God's the source of the revelation there. Jesus affirms that. Revelation, and he sends his angel to testify to John, the apostle of the Lord, these things, and to write them down for the seven churches that they're addressed to. And ultimately, here it comes to us today. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. These words, these visions, they're trustworthy. They are truth. All of it, as crazy as the things are that we have looked at, all of the symbols, all of the images, all of the pictures, I mean, beasts coming out of the sea, red dragons, right? A child being chased, ready, getting ready to be devoured, the, the four horsemen that we call the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right there in the seal visions, the plagues, all of the judgments, all of these scenes that we've looked at, they're trustworthy and they're true. The visions given to John and what has written there are truth. This statement is about the infallibility and inerrancy of the book of Revelation, which was divinely inspired directly from Jesus to John by way of the angelic messenger. It was written for the church. We're the main audience of this book. We're the main audience. It was written for us. With a very specific purpose. To show the church what must soon take place. That's why Jesus sent his angel. Aren't you glad that Jesus wants to tell us what must soon take place? These things are not to catch us off guard. We're we're to evaluate the world and see it and, and filter it through the lens of this glorious work that has been kept and preserved for us that is the trustworthy and true revelation of Jesus Christ. We're to know. And that's why he sent his angel. The second testimony there of this triplet here is the witness of John, specifically his firsthand witness. Look what he says I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. Why is this important? This is important in, in the legal arena. If you want to establish the testimony of a witness, they need to have been eyewitnesses. They need to be the ones who have seen the event or have heard it firsthand. Secondhand testimony is not admissible. So John is saying here, I am an eyewitness. I have firsthand account of these things. He saw them with his own eyes. He heard them with his ears as he was caught up by the Spirit of God and given a message by the angel of God to deliver to the people of God the Word of God. It's astounding to me. And he's saying, I saw it. I heard it with my own ears. You can believe the testimony. It's trustworthy and it's true because I am an eyewitness to these things. The third testimony here, this triplet, is the testimony of Jesus himself. Look what he says in verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. He testifies. Who's the one testifying? It's Jesus. He's the last and final witness presented here. And he's testifying to the veracity of the things contained in the book. All of the things. Not just the last things. Not just his statement that he's coming soon. But of all of the things there. The complete vision given to John is true. We've talked about this before, how many Christians avoid revelation because it's difficult. It's hard to understand. It's challenging. My goodness, we have labored hard over these many months to try to interpret and understand what these symbols, what these pictures, what these images are supposed to be. And so many Christians say, you know what? I'm going to stick to the Gospels. That's easier. I like the stories. I like the parables. You know, Revelation's too challenging. It's, it's too difficult. It's important here that we see that it's the word of God. It's trustworthy and it's true. And the fact that, that, that here at the end of your Bible, it's, it's, it's establishing this triple uh, line of witnesses here, the very words themselves, the authoritative word of God, divinely inspired, divinely given. We have divine authority. We have John's firsthand account, and then we have Jesus, the word of God himself, establishing Testifying to its truthfulness. It's important, isn't it? Revelation is important. Its message cannot be ignored. Its message must not be diminished and made to look like, well, it's so difficult. Let's avoid it. I told you this. I struggle trying to find series in Revelation. The churches just don't teach through the book of Revelation. It's hard. It's the hardest thing I've ever had to preach. But how life-giving, when we have just a glimpse, right, of an understanding of what it means and how it strengthens our Christian walk. The, third, uh, the second triplet we can look at here is the, this triple exhortation that's contained. Look at verse 7, the second part there. It's contained as a blessing. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed. We've seen there's seven blessings uh, in Revelation, seven benedictions, if you will. This is the sixth of the seventh. The last one is also found in this passage. And it echoes the first benediction in the opening chapter, Revelation 1, 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. It's just echoing that same thing. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy. Well, what does it mean to keep? When we think of keeping something, we think of safeguarding it or watching over it. The word here also means to observe. Like when we keep a holiday, right? We are observing a holiday. Well, here we are observing what? We're observing the words of the prophecy of this book. And that observation is to conform one's actions and, and practice to that thing that we are observing. So it means that we're keeping these words with the intent to obey them, and not just the intent, the actual practice of obeying what these words say. Dr. Joel Beakey in his commentary in Revelation, reminds us of this. He says that it's important for us to understand that the purpose of prophecy here and throughout Scripture is not to fire the imagination or to intrigue the intellect. It is to challenge the conscience and feed our faith so as to produce obedience to God rather than conformity to the pressing claims of the world. The foremost purpose of studying the book of Revelation is not to understand mysteries we have never understood before. But to encourage our obedience to God to his law and gospel so as to make progress in our sanctification. And that's true. And that's not just true of revelation, that is absolutely true of all scripture. That is the effect it should have on us. We shouldn't just be tickled by the things we're seeing, right, the symbols and wow, just trying to understand it and so that you know so our heads get bigger and we you know we can tell people we understand what these things mean and what they symbolize and then they have no effect in our life. They don't impact our heart. They don't change our heart. That, that in turn affects our behavior. And our obedience to God. And our worship of God. So this is the purpose of these things. And there's a blessing to those who keep the words. Who obey these words. So our obedience. And also to fuel our worship. There's this little scene here. That's kind of a repeat of something we already saw in Revelation. Where, where John you know, hears the angelic messenger, and hears the voice, and hears all these things. And he falls down at his feet to worship the messenger. And the messenger's like, hold up, stop, stop, stop. It's wrong. Who am I? I'm, a, I'm your fellow servant. He says, I'm a fellow servant of those who keep the word. Those who are obedient to the word. So don't worship me. I'm not worthy of it. Worship God, right? He redirects his worship back to God why do you have to do that? I'm going to think, John, how how could you be so confused about this angelic, that that's an angel and that's not Jesus? And I don't know exactly all the reasons why, other than maybe he's just, he's just blinded by the radiance of the glory that he's getting an opportunity to peer into. And and in this passage here, there's actually two voices speaking to him. We have this angelic messenger, then we also have Christ speaking. Like, this is the voice from the throne. We've seen that in different parts of Revelation in these heavenly scenes. There's a voice that comes from the throne, and then there's other angels speaking. And and you even have the multitudes in heaven, and the 24 elders or the four living creatures singing or saying something. And John is overwhelmed, right? Emotionally overwhelmed. Overwhelmed in every facet of that 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 word could mean and and he's distracted in that moment and he redirects his worship now not to Christ who's also speaking but but to this particular messenger itself it's a reminder I think to us here and I think it's included here uh, of how easy it is even for faithful Christians how easy it is even from an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to wrongly worship a messenger of God and not worship God, who's the one giving the message himself. We see that in our celebrity culture today. We see it in the church, even. Where a lot of, you know, just puff up and, and elevate these preachers and teachers and personalities. And, and it's idolatry. It's, it's worship. Worshiping the messenger rather than the one who is giving the message. And the only one who is worthy of worship himself. So this angel saying here, stop that. I'm nothing. Worship God. We see this aspect of worshiping God all throughout Revelation. The songs, I've told you this before, Revelation is a worship manual. It's a worship book. The songs contained there tell us a lot about the worship in heaven. And what, what we're doing here is a foretaste of that heavenly worship. What we're going to experience... The songs and the words and the lyrics that tell us something about the glories of heaven and our salvation and the one whom all our worship is to be directed to. So it inspires true worship of God. Notice how the exhortation is stated in the positive it's a blessing. Blessed are those who keep, blessed are the ones who obey the words. And that blessing isn't just for the world to come, as awesome as that is. Is a blessing that is extended to us in the now as we obey God and obey the words and obey the commands to overcome and to be faithful and to persevere and to hold fast and to not tolerate false teaching. It's a blessing in it for us here and now, but also the blessings of the world to come to those who conquer to the end, to the end. Do you love and treasure God's word, brothers and sisters? Do do you see revelation here as the very words of God that we are to keep, we are to hold to, we are to obey and, and live out in our lives? Do you grasp the meaning of the words of the prophecy contained here so that you're going to conform your life to obeying what it commands and committing yourself to the exclusive worship of God. We're told here that we're blessed if we do that. We're blessed if we keep these words. Look at the second of that threefold exhortation. It's a command to proclaim the words of this book. Verse 10. The angel said to me, "Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near." Now this is reminds us once again of Daniel's vision. And in Daniel's vision, he was told to seal up the words. What does that mean, seal, or to not seal? Well, it means to disclose the contents of it, to give the fulfillment of these things. Why was Daniel told not to, not to unseal these, but to seal them and to keep them? He was told that. Why? The time of the fulfillment of that prophetic vision, those prophetic words, was not yet. The time was not yet. Did you see that in Daniel 8 and Daniel 12? It wasn't the last days. Those words were for the last days. And that was still off from Daniel's time. Daniel's perspective, that was in the future. But now here in Revelation 1-3, we saw right at the beginning, it tells us that the time is near. Some of your translations say the time is at hand. It's here. Why? We're in the last days. You don't have to ask anymore, is this the end times? Yes. Yes. Are we in the last days? Yes. We have been in the last days since Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. That inaugurated, right, all that Daniel saw coming in the last days, in the future, that began that period of the last days. Are we in the last days now? Yes. Are we going to be in the last days? Yes. Until Christ returns. We are in the last days. John was instructed not to seal them up because he was in the last days. Plain and simple. We're living in the end times. I remember as a young Christian hearing that it's the end times. It's the end times. It's still the end times. It's still the end times. But don't let those words become so familiar to you that your heart is hardened to them. It's the end time, but is anything different? It's the end time, but is Christ coming back? It is the end times. It is the last days. The time is near. And we are to proclaim these words. We're not to seal them up. It's for the church. They're not sealed. It's for us right now. Revelation, the things we're seeing, is something that is happening now. Right now. Not in just in the future. Right now. This is why we're called to keep these words. To obey these words. And to proclaim its truths. You cannot ignore the message of Revelation. You also must not be embarrassed by the content of Revelation, which a lot of Christians are. That is just so weird. I don't ever want to tell anybody about those things. Yeah, it is weird, but it's God's word. It's truth. You can't say, Revelation is so difficult to understand. I'm just going to go with something a little bit easier. He says the time is near, right? Implicit in that is the urgency of our proclamation of these truths. The time is near. It's at hand. So we need to tell people it's the end times. We need to tell people Jesus is coming soon. Today is the day of salvation, right? Now, now, right? We need to tell them that even if they think we're crazy. And they will. And that's all right. We are crazy. (laughs) right? Jesus is coming soon. It's the end times. So the gospel age will come to an end. At that point, there's not going to be any further opportunities for salvation or calls to repentance. So what are we to do now? Not seal up the words of this book, but to proclaim them, herald them, shout them from the rooftops. Jesus is coming soon. Repent and turn to him for salvation. Verse 11 kind of seems a little cryptic and out of place in here. He says, let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. That sounds like a riddle. okay? But it, we, we just merely have to go back to the Old Testament. Again, Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 12, the this sim, this similar statement uh, is made there about the destiny of the righteous and the destiny of uh, the unrighteous. So the point in stating this is simply this, that at Christ's return, both groups will remain in their present condition. That at his return, wherever you're at, at that moment, will be a fixed state. If you're unrighteous at his return, you're going to remain in your unrighteousness. If you're righteous at his return, you remain in your righteousness. What does that mean? There are no second chances at his return. Like it's too late at that point to turn to Christ, to repent, and to call out for salvation. At his return, there'll be no further opportunities for that. God's work will be complete and finished. So the unrighteous continue in their unrighteousness, which will lead them to their final judgment. So, this is an exhortation for us as believers to holy living, right? to pursue righteousness to live holy lives in the fear of the Lord and again an exhortation to faithful proclamation we need to tell people about this today is the day of salvation do not harden your hearts like this crisis is extending this offer of salvation now to you this free gift of salvation in and through him at the point of his return it'll be too late too late When he returns, it's not going to be to redeem people. He's already done that. At his return, he says, it's to bring my recompense with me. To repay to each for what he has done. He's going to reward. What's that reward going to be contingent upon? The reward is going to depend upon whether Christ's blood has washed away your sins and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. If it's not there, your reward... You're going to get a reward because it's judgment, the second death, the lake of fire. The last blessing in verse 14 says that to those whose robes are washed are the ones who are going to have access to the blessings of eternal life. But all of humanity has robes. All of us have robes. Those robes are our deeds, our actions, our thoughts, our words, all that we've done in the flesh That's what we're going to be judged upon. For us, those robes are stained. They're defiled. They are filthy. They are torn. They are splattered with the filth of our sin and our wickedness. The word tells us that we can't enter the holy city with the robes in that condition. And that there's nothing we can do to wash our robes clean enough to grant us access No matter what skill you have in sewing, you will not be able to mend these torn and tattered robes to gain access to the tree of life and to the presence of God. We've seen this time and time again in Revelation. There is only one way to have our robes washed clean, and that is through the blood of Jesus. Having our robes washed in his blood. That's what removes the stain Of our sin. And removes our guilt. And forgives us. And cleanses us. And makes us right. And causes us to live a holy life. Pleasing to God. Here's the recompense. Of the unrighteous. And that's in verse 15. They are outside the city. They don't enter in. They can't pass through the gates. Outside are the dogs. And sorcerers. And the sexually immoral. And murderers. And idolaters. And everyone who loves and practices falsehood. See, those whose robes are not washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, that's where they are, outside the city. Don't get the impression that there's people out there pounding on the gates, let me in, let me in. They're not there, right? This is figurative here. Outside means they're not even in the arena of the new heavens and the new earth. They're not part of the, the scope of the new creation. They've tasted of the second death. They are in the lake of fire for all of eternity, forever and ever. That's where they are. They're called dogs. I don't know if you know this, but dogs in Scripture are not held in high esteem. I know you guys love your dogs. I know you do. But dogs is a dirty word in the Scripture. <laughs> God's people didn't have dogs as pets. Right? Um, they're not in heaven, according to this. I'm sorry. That's not what it says there. <laughs> I, said, I said it the other night. Right, Dogs are outside the city. Cats are nowhere in God's universe. They're <laughs> annihilated. So that's even worse, right? Um, they're not held in high They're symbols. In Scripture, to talk of dogs is to talk of something filthy, something vile okay, uh, something unclean. And dogs are, uh, in Scripture are associated with idolatry, with sorcery, uh, with violence, with uh, foolishness, right, as a dog returns to his vomit, right, the, the, so, so the foolish does those things, uh, it returns to their sin, return to their old ways. And dogs is also a symbol for false teachers in the church that plague the church of Jesus Christ. So none of that's going to be present In the holy city, none of those people who practice these things talked about here in this list. right? They have filthy robes. They're murderers. They're covenant breakers. They're idolaters. They worship false gods. They're false teachers. They practice lies and falsehoods. They live deceitful and duplicitous lives. They have no right to the tree of life. And they cannot enter the holy city. But those whose robes have been washed they enjoy the blessings of that so the exhortation here is to be found with your robes washed at the return of christ because whatever state you're in at that moment that's the state you will continue in forever and if this doesn't provoke us here to to proclaim this message to make sure first of all that our robes are washed in christ's blood And to communicate that to others, to proclaim this truth, you need to wash your robes in the blood of Jesus. The hour is urgent. The time is near, brothers and sisters. The third uh, exhortation we're given is a warning to those who hear the words. Verse 18, I warn you. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in the book. If anyone takes away from the words... Of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Again, this warning is true for all of scripture, but especially concerning the book of Revelation. What is God saying here? Don't mess with my words. Don't tamper with my words. Look, notice that this exhortation and warning is not for the unbelieving world. Like, they jack up and twist and distort God's Word all the time, right? They're already under condemnation. Who is this Word directed to? To the church. This is for the church. This warning is to the church. And it's a warning to all those who sit in the church, who are part of the visible church here on earth, right, to not twist the Scriptures or pervert them in the name of Christ. It's a warning to all of those who take away part of scripture. The things that they don't like. The things that sound kind of mean to the world. Because they want to make the message more palatable to the unchurched. To the unbelieving sinful world. It's a warning to false teachers in the church. Who All they do is preach about their dreams and visions and angelic visitations here. And lead God's people into idolatry and apostasy. These are not... Your words, they're God's words. I want you to feel the weight of the, this warning that's given to God's people who claim to be God's people and are sitting in churches and feel like they can do anything they want to with God's words. You're not free to do that. You're not free to alter them. You're not free to add to them. You're not free to take anything away from them. This is how you can know if you're tampering with God's words. If you're talking to someone else about God's word and you always have to add a but. I know God's word says that, but you're in dangerous territory. God's word stands alone. You don't add anything to it. You don't take anything away from it. You don't try to smooth it out. You don't try to distill it and diminish it and making it easier for people to go. Yeah, you know, that's kind of cool. God's so loving. When you do that, you deny the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, and that places you in a very dangerous place. When you tell people the Old Testament is is irrelevant, or that you can unhitch yourself from the Old Testament, or guess what? You know all you have to do is read the, the red letters. Yeah, the red letters are the words of Jesus. they are the most important. Just concentrate on those. Watch out. Watch out this warning. Then it's for you. There's a lot of modern day Marcionites. Marcion was a second century heretic. He didn't like the God of the Old Testament. He saw the God of Old Testament inconsistent with the God of the New Testament. That God was wrathful and mean and vengeful. Ah, who wants that? The God of the New Testament, though. Jesus, he's the God of love and peace and harmony and Zen and all good things. So, What did he do? He chopped up the scripture and just kept what he thought fit in with that, that conception that he had of how God should be. And all he was left with is a Bible of God of love, a God of mercy, a God of kindness, a God of tenderness. But, but none of that wrath stuff, none of that hell stuff is in there. And he ended up with a kind of, of, of Christianity and Bible that he wanted. It's heresy. This warning is for someone like him, and it's warning for anyone today who acts this way. In fact, when you, when you look at what Marcion did, it's the very same thing we find progressive Christians doing today. Let's take out these mean things. We shouldn't be talking about wrath. We shouldn't be talking about hell. We shouldn't be talking about judgment. God's all love. But we've exhausted, I think, that subject in our series here But this warning is for those who attempt to do those things, to soften the word of God so people will just like them, accept them, admire them, welcome them. There is nothing new under the sun, right? Here in the first century, the church is being warned about that, and we need to continue to warn God's people of this very same thing. The penalty for tampering with God's word is severe, Look at the ironic manner in which this is stated. Add to the words of the book, and you will have added to you the plagues described in this book. Take away from the words of this book, guess what's going to be taken away from you? Your share in eternal life. That's frightening. That's terrifying. The punishment for messing with God's word is in direct proportion to the sin of tampering with God's word. It's for the church. It's for the church. It's for us. All of us that are part of the visible, professing community of faith of Jesus Christ, we must heed this. Let's look at the triple invitation quickly, there in verse 17. It's an invitation to come, to receive, to come to Christ, to embrace Christ. Spurgeon, preaching on this very same verse, stated that it's placed at the very end of the Bible and placed there because it is the sum and substance, the aim and object of the whole Bible. It's like the point of the arrow and all of the rest of the Bible is like the shaft and feathers on either side of it. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, and that's what we're being invited to, to come to Christ. So we have three invitations extended here. The first is from the Spirit and the Bride. But who are they speaking to? Who are they addressing? The Spirit and the Bride. The Holy Spirit and the Bride, which is the church, the true church of Jesus Christ, say, come. Now, there could be a number of options here, and scholars are kind of, uh, you know, split on this. Certainly, it's an invitation that the church is extending, and the Spirit of Christ through the church of Jesus Christ extending an invitation For unbelievers to come to Christ. But I believe this right here. This invitation is being made from the spirit and the bride to Christ. For him to come. It's an expression of the church's longing. The bride's longing through the power of God's spirit. To be with Christ. To be with Christ. The bride longs for her husband. For the bridegroom. Longs for the wedding day. Longs to be with him. The spirit and the bride are saying, come. Come, Lord. Now, that's not going to hasten his coming. There's a timetable. But it's a yearning. Like, I don't like to be apart from Betsa for long. When, we're, when we've been away for an extended period of time, we're always calling each other. Oh, Schmookie, I love you. can't wait to see you can't wait to come home. And you're like, yeah, come on home. I can't wait for you to come home. Okay? We long to be. What's that? That's only at work. That's only at work. <laughs> now, if you don't, if you like to be away from your spouse, well, then that's a counseling session we'll need to have. But typically it's not like that, right? You want to be with one another. Well, if the spirit of Christ is in you, brothers and sisters, you should long to be with Christ. You should long for his return. You should yearn for it. It should be like your prayer. Lord, come, Lord Jesus, come. I desire to be with you. I desire to be with you in glory. So I believe that's what the Spirit and the bride are doing here. They're, that's an expression of that yearning for his return to be with him. To consummate the wedding. The second invitation here is to the one who hears. Let the one who hears say, come. It's an invitation for those who hear the exhortation of the Spirit. Recall the admonitions found at the end of every one of the seven letters to the church in chapters 2 and 3. What did did it say? It's the same formula. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear. What kind of hearing is that? Well, it's a spiritual hearing. It's not a physical hearing. It's a spiritual hearing. And who are the ones who can spiritually hear the Spirit of God? Only those who've been granted spiritual hearing. Only those who've been regenerated by the Spirit of God. Only those who have the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God can respond to this invitation. The one who hears then also longs for Christ. And they're joining in with the true church. So it's from the, from the, the church, the macro now, to the, to, to the micro, to the individual, the one who hears Let him join into that chorus, calling on the Lord to come. I think there's another purpose to that, to the one who hears saying come. It's an invitation, yes, for the Lord to return because of a yearning for him, but also a call to those who are part of the church, but who are dull of hearing. Who are dull of hearing, who have resisted the message to come to Christ, to believe the gospel, and to live and long for his return. The reality is the visible church is comprised of true, regenerate saints of God and just those who are making a profession of faith with their mouth, but truly aren't. So we, God's people, should continually be extending that invitation. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Turn to Christ and follow Him. Lastly, it's to the thirsty Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That invitation then is extended to the thirsty to come to Christ. It's for those who thirst after God. For those who have uh, deeply drunk from the well of salvation. Who've tasted of those living waters. Which is Christ. It's a call for us to drink. It's a call for us to persevere. To drink deeply of Christ. It's For those who are uh, thirsty. And and I and can only be completely and continually satisfied with Christ who is the living water. It's an invitation that's extended that we cannot ignore. We can't. How many of us receive evites in the mail? I don't open 99% of those. You send me an evite, it usually doesn't get opened. I don't know why. It just doesn't seem like a formal invitation to me. Now, you mail something to me and I open it up. That's something I usually respond to, right? Uh, and we can decline, we can accept, right? Or, yeah, you can toss it in the trash, too, I guess, as well. Not all invitations, you know, have the same level of urgency of response. What do you think about this invitation? To come to Christ, to turn to Him, to follow Him, to drink deeply of the living water that He offers freely without price. This is not an invitation That you can afford to ignore. That's why it's extended to the whole church. Whether they are are true believers or they are just professing Christians. Who have not really been converted. There are many who attend church regularly. There are many who hear lots of preaching and sit under preaching. and, And sit under gospel messages and have heard thousands of them over the years. They read their Bible. They even pray. But none of that matters if you've not drank of the waters of life that are freely offered to you in Christ. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you haven't had your, wo- your robes washed in his blood. So that's why the Bible ends with this invitation to come. To come to Christ. To be cleansed. To drink. To have life everlasting. Do not reject that offer. Do not discard the invitation. Demands a response. The last set of triplets here is this threefold exclamation made by our Lord Himself. It punctuates the conclusion of this book. I am coming soon. It says in verse 7, verse 12, behold, I'm coming soon. And in verse 20, surely, surely. It's another exclamation there. Yes, with certainty. I am coming soon. These are the very words of Christ. This isn't the angel telling John. He's coming soon. This is Jesus himself saying. I am coming soon. And he follows two of those with these I am declarations. That can only be attributed to him. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first, the last, the beginning and the end. The one who's coming soon. I am coming soon. Is the sovereign Lord over all of human history. The one who's fulfilling and completing the eternal decrees of the Father. The Creator who is before all things and by whom all things exist. He says also in verse 16 I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. I'm the Messiah. I'm the promised son of David, whose throne will go on forever and ever. The morning star, the light of the world. These statements can only be attributed to Jesus Christ. And at the end of all, on the last page of scripture, what does Jesus say? I am coming soon. If you have any doubt, if you're wondering... If you're not sure if, if all of this is going to work out in the end, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Notice, he doesn't say, I will be coming soon. Isn't that interesting that he doesn't express it in the future tense, which we would expect. Like we don't see him right now. We're not, his visible return hasn't happened yet. But he didn't say, I will be coming soon. He expresses it in the present. I am Coming soon. I'm already on the way. Well, how can that be? How can he be already on the way? What does that mean? Well, his statement, "I am coming soon for sure," is referring to his second coming, his his visible return at the end of all things. Well, I mean, it's it's what we it's what we talk about right in the creeds and the confessions, especially the Apostles' Creed. The Lord's going to return to judge the living and the dead. We certainly are talking about his second appearing here. There's a few things I think in view here. Yes, it's a reminder to the suddenness of his return. I'm coming soon. We don't know when that's going to be. We don't know the day nor the hour. In fact, in chapter 16, 15, he says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Right, that, that To be alert, to be ready, because we don't know. No one knows. If someone says, the Lord showed me when he's coming, just kind of laugh at him. Okay, No one knows. It says, behold, I'm coming like a thief. It's the suddenness of his return. Not the unexpectedness, right, because his people expect his return, but the suddenness of it. It's a reminder also of the nearness of Christ's return. See, on God's calendar, on his redemptive calendar of of how all of this is to play out in human history, this is the next major event to occur. So in that sense, we can say it's near. We're definitely nearer than this first century church that read this letter. It's near. It's at hand. We're already in the last days. It's already been inaugurated. Christ has already been coming. He's already been coming in the events that are described here in Revelation. There's things that have already happened that tell us that Christ is coming soon, that the time is at hand, that these are the last days, and it's all moving forward to that climactic moment of his glorious appearing. It's coming soon, brothers and sisters. 35 years ago, I remember as a young Christian hearing those very same words for the first time and reading this, and I was terrified. I was terrified. I wanted to make sure I was living right. And I was walking in holiness and walking in righteousness. Because Jesus could show up at any, at any moment. He's going to whisk me away to the clouds. I had hoped. Some of you who have been Christians for a long time know what I'm talking about. You've heard many messages about the return of the Lord. He's coming soon. He's coming soon. It's heard at altar calls. Get yourself ready. There's no second chances. He's coming soon. Now is the day. Well, what happens? Well, the years keep ticking away. And the Lord's not coming as we expect him to return. And it turns into, I hope he's coming. One day, I hope. Well, maybe it's not in my lifetime. It's interesting that all of the apostolic writers express the coming of the Lord as something happening in their generation, in their time. There was an expectancy of it. There was an urgency to the message that it's at hand. And they weren't wrong. From the perspective that Jesus has been coming since his inauguration. But in what sense? See, I think about these first century believers who are facing intense persecution under Rome. And even believers to this day, this message of Jesus coming soon has to be a comfort to the heart of the believer who's facing that. To hold on. To persevere. To persevere. Overcome to the end. He's coming soon. 2 Peter talks about and warns those who mock and scoff at the promise of Christ's coming. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Right? The world thinks we're foolish for believing in this promise of his return. Where is he? Show me show me. You ever had someone say that to you? you ever witnessed someone or shared the gospel with someone and you tell them about the Lord returning you're like, what? Really? Two thousand some years? It takes him that long? How far away is he? Like, how far away did he ascend to that it's taken him two thousand some odd years to make his way back to earth? They scoff, they mock, they ridicule, they make fun of people who believe that. It's a fairy tale, they say. So in what way is he coming soon? Well, we're to understand this coming soon as a period of preparation. A period of preparation that must be fully completed prior to his visible appearing. There's things that have to take place before and have to be completed before Christ returns visibly. Think about if you are going to visit some relatives overseas, right? And they call you and they say, when are you coming? I'm coming soon. I'm coming on this date. I'm coming soon. I'll be there. Is that it? Are you there? No, right? There's a period of preparation. You might need to ask time off from work. You might need to make preparations, you know, so someone to manage your business while you're gone. You've got to get your affairs in order. You've got to purchase airline tickets. You've got to figure out who's going to take care of your dog that's not going to be in heaven, but you've got to take care of him here on earth. Who's going to watch him? Who's going to walk him? Who's going to feed him? Your kids have got to get their homework if it's during the school year. right? You've got to get a rental car. You've got to find accommodations and lodges. There's all sorts of preparation for you to come to the point of saying, I'm coming soon, is going to be visibly manifest. It's a period of preparation. The intent is there. You will be there soon. You're coming soon. And in a sense, this is what we find with the statement, I am coming soon. That Christ's coming involves a great deal of preparation. We know that in Matthew 24, part of that preparation is that, that all of the elect have to be gathered in. 24, 14 of Matthew this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then and then the end will come Christ will not return visibly until all the preparations are completed there is the mystery of iniquity that the scripture talks about the mystery of evil and how that plays out in this world until the end that has to be fulfilled, has to run its course. right? This is something that only in the mind of God can be comprehended and, and, and fleshed out and understood, but the scripture talks about it. It's all preparation for the visible manifestation of his return. But we don't know the day or the hour, but all these preparations are being made right now. He's on the way. He's on the way. And we know he's on the way because we go back To chapter 5, he's the Lamb of God, worthy to break the seals and open the scrolls. What's the scroll? The scroll is what contains all of the eternal decrees of God concerning the salvation and redemption of humanity. And he is fulfilling every single one of those things, making sure all of the preparations are complete. And then he'll return, where every eye will see him and every eye will behold him. His return is a process. It's been long underway, but it's well underway. I love how John, after that statement, that exclamation Christ makes, surely I'm coming soon, he adds his own exclamation point to that. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. That, that's us, right? Come, Lord Jesus. should be our prayer. should be what we long for. It's how we should live each and every day, brothers and sisters, as if he's coming today. What if it's coming today? How would that inform our life? What would we do? Would we see that some of the things that we think are priorities in our life really don't matter? But his return is imminent. Don't lose hope in that promise. Be encouraged by the reality of it. The certainty of it. Surely I am coming soon. It's a call to persevere here, right at the end of Revelation. As we're, we're drawing to the close of this book, God's people need to know, need to believe, He's coming soon, and live accordingly. It should drive us to obedience and worship. So many symbols, so many images of judgment and punishment and wrath. But not here in these last words of Revelation. It's not what we find here at all. I love how the last word of our Bible. The last word is a blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Grace. That's the last word. Grace is what we need to be saved. Grace is what we need to persevere in this life. Grace is what we need to to live lives of holiness and walk in Christ-likeness. Grace is what we need to, to just hold fast until the coming of the Lord. Grace is what we need to overcome to the end, to hold on to the hope of His coming in all things. And grace is what we've been given in Christ. He is all of grace. And He's given us all of the grace we need, brothers and sisters. To overcome to the end. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And it is by the grace of our Lord that you and I can say, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.